when an active hurricane season led to martial law and the most destructive hurricane to impact the Central East Coast. Showdown in the Atlantic. El Nino versus sizzling sea surface temperatures. Dr. Brian McDoldy referees the matchup. This is NTWC Live. Good morning, everybody. Welcome to NTWC Live for Wednesday. It's July the 26th. Hard to believe we're almost to the end of July already. Time flying by. I've got a great program coming up for you today. Uh, Bill Reed's not with us today, but he should be back next week. Uh, Dr. Hal Needham is here today to ask all the tough questions. We appreciate that. Um, it's going to be a really interesting program, I think. The second half hour, um, uh, Brian McNulty is going to be with us. We're going to talk about just how warm the Atlantic Ocean is, the Atlantic Basin, and not just a small part of it, all of it. I think that's going to be a fascinating conversation, and and that'll be coming up in the second half hour. I think you're going to enjoy that. A lot of good information there. This first half hour, though, we're going to take a jump back in time and see how what happened a long time ago applies to what's happening today. And we're going to look at 90 years ago, the Chesapeake Potomac hurricane, and of course the Cuba Brownsville hurricane. So we'll get to that in just a second. Before we get there, we want to thank our sponsors who are with us today. As always, USAA. Thank you, USAA, for all that you do for the National Tropical Weather Conference and for the parent organization, the Storm Science Network. We appreciate USAA for being part of what we've been doing for a very long time. So thank you to USAA. The South Padre Island Convention and Visitors Bureau, South Padre Island, has been the host for the National Tropical Weather Conference since the very beginning, and we'll be back in South Padre Island in April of 2024. We encourage you to join us, register when the registration opens, and come be part of the fun. Everything you see here, we do live in person at the Marriott Courtyard Hotel on South Padre Island. We'll be there in April of 2024. The Weather Company, providing TV stations across the country with weather graphics and weather data. We appreciate the Weather Company, and also Weather Boy. Weather Boy providing great information for us, including scholarships for college students from all over the country to come to the National Tropical Weather Conference uh, contest. At the end of the contest, we've had students from all over the nation come to the National Tropical Weather Conference, courtesy of Weather Boys, so we appreciate uh, their support as well. Okay, great program. Let's get over to Hurricane Hal, Dr. Hal Needham, uh, to talk about uh, 90 years ago. Uh, even I wasn't alive then. Even Bill wasn't alive then, but uh, some people may have been. Good morning, Hal. Thanks, Tim. Great intro. Yeah, this is going to be fascinating to turn back the clock, go back 90 years to 1933. It was a long time ago, but there were some huge impacts from big time hurricanes hitting different parts of the country. We're going to talk about what would happen if that happened again today. We have specialists from both of those regions. I can't wait to introduce our guests this morning, both very well qualified to talk about what happened in 1933 and how we can apply that to our hurricane preparedness today. So our two guests, we have Mike Builder. Mike Builder is the hurricane program manager and hurricane liaison team lead for FEMA Region 3. Prior to FEMA, he worked eight years for the National Weather Service as an emergency manager and policy analyst. Mike also has a passion for history, especially weather and emergency response history. Our second guest on the show today is Barry Goldsmith. He's a warning coordinator warning coordination meteorologist at the National Weather Service office in Brownsville, Texas. He also has held positions with the National Weather Service in Tampa and Baltimore, Washington offices. He played an instrumental role early in his career, making sure Congress backed the expansion of Doppler radar technology nationwide. Mike and Barry, welcome to NTWC Live. Thanks for joining us this morning. Good morning. Good morning, it's a pleasure to be here. Good to be here. 
you know, guys, we're going to be talking about the 1933 hurricanes. And sometimes when people start reading the history, they're like, wait, these are two huge hurricanes that hit very different parts of the country. Uh, Barry, let's start with you. So sometimes this hurricane of 1933 is called the Cuba Brownsville hurricane. Could you tell us a little bit about this storm? Where did it come from and what were the impacts there in South Texas? So the Cuba to Brownsville hurricane, uh, we like to call it here in the Rio Grande Valley, the Labor Day hurricane of 1933, was a Cabo Verde originator uh, back in uh, mid to late August. Took a little while to get its act together. It had to move uh, all the way into the Western Atlantic before it did. But when it did, it went pretty quickly and ultimately became a Category 5 storm as it was moving um, into the area uh, near the eastern Bahamas. And then it moved uh, in the window it could possibly move in to cause a lot of uh, destruction, unfortunately. It literally threaded the needle of the Florida Straits. And it clipped the north coast of Cuba uh, right around the 1st of September. And because it only clipped the north coast and didn't run over the mountainous ranges of Cuba, it was able to maintain its major status and uh, briefly re-intensified to a Category 4 over the central, uh, south central and west central Gulf. And then it made a southwest curve or west-southwesterly directional turn right into South Padre Island, Texas as a fairly formidable Category 3 before ultimately dissipating near the Sierra Madre in northern Mexico. Well, Barry, so what kind of impacts uh, did it have there in South Padre along the Rio Grande Valley? I mean, when the hurricane hit the coast, what did it find? Were there a lot of people there at that time, and what were the impacts? So the population of the region uh, on the U.S. side was roughly 150,000 people which by the way is about one-tenth of what our population is today. And we'll get to that discussion shortly. Uh, the, the impacts were severe. It was the deadliest hurricane in the region of the 20th century, and we haven't had anything close to that uh, since. So <clears throat> numbers are abound in terms of the news reporting coverage of how many did die. And back then when they reported uh, deaths. They didn't just report on the U.S. side. The Rio Grande Valley was like Maryland and Virginia. I know we'll be talking about them soon, but it was literally like crossing the Potomac. And so the newspaper reports mentioned the uh, deaths that occurred in uh, Matamoros, in Reynosa, Mexico, just like they would in, say, northern Virginia for the D.C. metro area. So when, they, when it comes to the 40 deaths that we had, we believe it was a combination of initial reports, which were about 22 to 26 in the first couple of days, and then ultimately people that didn't make it out of hospital alive, which was the final report for the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers in 1956 on the event, which is where the 40 comes from. So the, the fatalities is the number one thing, but there was quite a bit of damage to both infrastructure, meaning buildings, as well as to crops. We lost a vast majority of our citrus crop uh, due to that storm in 1933. And one more thing to note that is common then and even now regarding how these fatalities occurred, most of them were in collapsed buildings where people were sheltering and they didn't make it out alive. So that's the tragic part of the 1933 hurricane here in Brownsville and Rio Grande Valley. Barry, if, if we repeated 1933 today, how would the impacts be different? So the number one impact would be uh, how much damage we would have to infrastructure here. We'll start with South Padre Island. Back then, it was a sleepy beach town, mainly an outpost in 1933. 
And it didn't really get developed heavily until the mid to late 1980s, all the way until today, where there was likely more than $1 billion worth of property there. Not that all of that will be destroyed. We have a lot of wind code here that will allow the buildings to survive, but we're talking tens of millions of dollars in damage alone for South Padre. Um, farther west into the Rio Grande Valley, the issue is we have many more people, but also we have a number of substandard structures. Back then, maybe we had hundreds to maybe a thousand or so substandard in the 1930s. Now we could be talking 10,000 substandard structures in the region. And if a 33 hurricane were to go across the region that it did then now, meaning crossing the heart of Brownsville City uh, into some of our populated areas along the Interstate 2 corridor into Southeast Hidalgo County, we'd be talking about up to 750,000 to a million people impacted. And if those people have not evacuated and tried to shelter in some of these buildings, we could unfortunately face a uh, multi-fatality and mass casualty event. So evacuation is going to be key for a repeat of 1933 if it were to happen this year. Barry, it sounds like you're saying even though the building codes have improved, there are still many more substandardly uh, constructed buildings today in harm's way than in 1933. Yes, unfortunately, the state of Texas has a mixed bag when it comes to building code. So South Padre Island, where the new condominiums go up, they are built just as strong as anything you would see in Florida. And we know Florida has some of the strongest hurricane building codes in the country. But the farther inland you go, especially into rural areas, in some locations, there's no code. So people that come across the border or people that have lived here a while without many means to actually contract someone to build a home that would be at some level of code will just slap together whatever materials they have into a structure that their family can live under, literally the roof over their head. But the quality of that roof may be very poor. In fact, as poor as some of the structures we saw in 1933. And that's the concern we have. If a hurricane like the 33 storm tracks over these regions now, uh, we could be talking uh, a mass casualty event because of how many structures are in harm's way that are not built to any code to withstand the winds that we had back then, which generally range from 100 to 125 miles per hour across that populated area that included Brownsville, San Benito, Rio Hondo. These are towns near Harlingen um, and then all the way over to uh, Southeast Hidalgo County before moving into Mexico. And by the way, Mexico would be impacted too. There's a lot more population along the other side of the Rio Grande that would be impacted. And there are substandard structures there as well. Wow. So Barry, it sounds like you're saying really vast wind impacts. Not, we're not even talking flooding yet. We're just talking about wind impacts on structures would be phenomenal if we repeated 1933. Yeah, that's correct, uh, Hal. And also we do want to note that that storm did slow down a little bit as it moved inland and it put out over 15 inches of rain in some locations which today are being improved in terms of drainage, but we're also developing almost as fast as we're improving the drainage. So we could have a flood issue from freshwater rainfall. And then of course the storm surge has been measured or estimated as high as 13 feet. In fact, in Port Isabel, a resident there that we spoke with um, at a museum event back in 2013, she was able to tell her story as a 13 year old living through 1933, as well as living through Beulah uh, just uh, 40, uh, four years later, 
or 34 years later, excuse me. And she said that the 33 surge was violent, um, strong wave action, and they were literally, quote, holding on for dear life to survive 1933. My concern is that people who might not evacuate from a repeat this time could face that same fate in places like Port Isabel, Texas, where uh, the bay, the water will surge through the bay there and come with not only high water, but but strong and a very violent wave action on top of it. Barry, you, you mentioned Beulah. I mean, when, when we hear South Texas, the big storms that come to mind in the history are 1933 and Beulah in 1967. How were those storms different in their intensity, their track and, and impacts? So Hurricane Beulah uh, was also a Cabo Verde storm. Uh, unlike the 33 event, it did not thread a needle across the Florida Straits. Rather, it went through the Yucatan Channel, which is also threading a needle, meaning it didn't hit land on either side, and then it had free reign to go into the Gulf. It had a lot of fluctuations in intensity as it moved through the southwestern Gulf, and then it made a beeline from southwest to southeast to northwest and made landfall uh, around the mouth of the Rio Grande, which is our kind of our worst case scenario. It was also a larger storm, so it was uh, more radius of maximum wind, but fortunately it slowed down and the winds did diminish quite a bit as it moved inland. Uh, Beulah was mostly remembered as a flood maker for the larger populations in places like McAllen, Texas, um, but also the, the floods caused issues with the Rio Grande flood control system where the levees did not necessarily hold up. We had some very high water in Harlingen. So Beulah was a larger storm moving slower to the northwest. It had actually been um, a Category 4 at one point before making landfall as a 3. Uh, so if a Beulah makes landfall today, it will cause some significant impacts but the rapid weakening of the winds will help reduce how far inland and how much we could see in this building stock that we mentioned before. A 1933 storm, on the other hand, came in at that orthogonal or perpendicular angle to the coast, which maximized a more violent storm surge with the uh, power of the water coming in uh, directionally towards the shoreline, whereas Beulah was a little more upshore, and so it was more of an easier, kind of easing in versus slamming in. And the same with the winds. We have reports that we believe are honest of 125 mile per hour wind gusts up to 25, 30 miles inland with 1933, whereas Beulah, we think that those gusts were really contained to the east side of Brownsville, the Brownsville Ship Channel, Port of Brownsville, South Padre, Port Isabel area, not farther west where now there's a lot more permanent population to deal with. So uh, it could be a, a bigger difference in wind impact for a 33 storm now, whereas surge impacts would probably be still larger in the height of the water, the water depth from a Beulah, but still the violent surge with the wave action came more with 1933 than 1967. So when you combine it all together, there's certainly bad scale here. You know, tail of the tape would be high to extreme impacts and a lot of the, the big four that we look out outside of tornado, of course. Um, so it's a size matter situation. It's a slowdown. It's the amount of rain. So we'd be talking half the amount of rainfall that we saw with Beulah in 33, um, as we did see one pocket of 15 inches, but Beulah, we saw 30 inches of rain in some places. 
So those are some main differences. Wind is the main impact from 33 that we've remembered it by and the unfortunate fatalities that caused that was caused by it and rainfall and flooding and levee systems were the more memorable event for the Rio Grande Valley as a whole from Hurricane Buell in 67. Barry, thanks for sharing these insights. You know, it's been a really long time since we've had huge hurricane impacts there in extreme South Texas. So I think it's really valuable for us to go back into this history, see what's happened in the past and, and imagine what those impacts could be in the future. Uh, before we go over to Mike, you know, Tim, you live down there in the Valley. Do you have any questions or insights on anything that Barry shared so far today? Just one quick question. I think Barry will probably talk about this next week when we're talking about resilience. But, you know, the Laguna Heights tornado a couple of months ago was a great example, I think, of, you know, a, a very small scale test run for what what an impact of a hurricane would be on our coastal community today, because that was a short lived tornado um, that that took a life um, and, and caused significant damage. And that lasted a few seconds. You know, imagine how that would be if it was a, a significant hurricane. Yeah, Laguna Heights kind of crystallized the efforts we're trying to build here on resilience at a low cost to get some of these buildings we have up to not perfect code, but a code where people could actually hunker down and shelter in to stay alive. Again, there'll be damage still, but not destruction or demolition. And as Tim mentioned, we did lose a life in that event back in May. We also had 11 injuries. Two, uh, several of them were critical. Two were in the hospital for a while. And in each case, it was from a building that was demolished that was not even close to any normal code. And the fact that this, this town is on the coast means that we have a lot of work to do. And that's my nightmare. My nightmare is people trying to stay sheltered in these substandard buildings and facing 100 to 125 mile per hour wind gusts, which was was a lot more than Hannah, and Hannah caused uh, dozens of demolished homes as well, as far inland as Edinburgh, which is about 70 miles from the coast. So a lot of concern here, but we think we have some ways of getting some resilience built uh, before we can completely turn it over and get all these buildings to be at, at a reasonable code to withstand a hurricane force winds here. I have a lot more questions too, but I know we want to get over to Mike and talk about uh, Chesapeake Potomac as well. Maybe we'll get time at the end. Go ahead, Hal. Yeah, let's go over to Mike. And then, Tim, I know sometimes we have questions come in online, too. I'll pass it back to you before we close out. I know we always get some really good questions from our online audience. Mike, thank you so much for taking time to come on the broadcast. It's crazy to picture a year where we had a Cat 3 hurricane in South Texas and then another major hit in the uh, Chesapeake Topo uh, Potomac area. Could you walk us through what happened in the Chesapeake Potomac hurricane of 1933? Oh, sure, definitely. And I'll, I'll pull up uh, kind of like a lifespan uh, track here. Um, maybe good to exercise it or uh, illustrate it. One thing I will note, and and actually Barry, uh, myself, and Phil Klotzbach uh, presented uh, on this back in April, um, and Phil uh, was kind of like started us off because he in AMS wrote a great article about a, a year and a half ago, a couple of years ago, about the, the 1933 hurricane in general or the hurricane season, um, and it was before 2005. It was the you know the craziest year on record. So uh, the two hurricanes we're talking about here. Um, we're not covering all the ones. There was a big one in Jupiter, Florida, that hit Jupiter, Florida. There was another, the the one that hit uh, uh, Mexico, Tampico, uh, Mexico, was was uh, horrendous as well, arguably worse than the Brownsville one. Um, um, but I will say one thing off the bat is that our, the, the 33 hurricane in the Chesapeake Bay and the Potomac River, that was um, not, you know, compared to the other ones, is actually probably the, the quote unquote weakest storm, but yet very impactful. 
Uh, it was another, uh, you know, Cape Verde uh, uh, origin storm, uh, you know, coming across around August 13th, uh, 1933. It eventually reads, uh, reaches uh, peak intensity as a Cat 4, makes landfall. We'll talk about landfall here in a moment as a Cat 1 uh, in Nags Head, North Carolina. But we, they didn't even, you know, kind of show you where we were back then. It didn't even make, make what was the version of the tropical weather outlook back then until August 17th. And that wasn't even like a warning. That, and, and we're talking about something that's hitting on the 23rd. Uh, so then you don't even have your first, quote unquote, storm warning uh, issued until the morning of the 21st. And that doesn't really get published in the papers till the evening. So you're really not getting the word out until about the evening or the morning of the 22nd. Even then, it's not entirely sure like what's going to happen. Um, so, it, you know, on August 23rd, it does make landfall in North Carolina. Um, if we look here, this is a little bit of a closer up look. It really starts to uh, the, the surge in Hampton Roads, Virginia, um, starts to get pretty bad about the night before. Uh, and everything reaches its apex at about nine o'clock in the morning on Wednesday, August 23rd. Uh, it goes right up the bay. Uh, it impacts uh, Washington, D.C. Uh, and, and Baltimore. And then the remnants go into Pennsylvania and even up into the Catskills. And, and it's still the flood of record for uh, uh, parts of Pennsylvania, especially York, Pennsylvania. And York, Pennsylvania experienced both the 1936 flood and Agnes. So in 33 still beat it. So uh, it is still the storm of record as far as storm surge goes for the lower parts of the bay, the upper parts of the bay are were kind of uh, uh, Isabel in 2003, another anniversary this year, uh, took, uh, you know, took kind of the, the trophy there. But pretty much all throughout the bay, the number one and two storms are Isabel and and um, the 33 hurricane. And they just kind of, you know, they, they trade off on who's, you know, who's uh, who's ahead. Uh, and. So it's a very um, up in D.C. It's still uh, it's still in the top five, although there uh, you know you get a lot more influence from the big river flooding from the other types of floods. So there's a little more competition there. Um, but it is the legacy is big. We didn't have many gauges on the uh, on the Delmarva Peninsula, but it it was a very horrendous impact on the Delmarva Peninsula. You know the Ocean Sea, Maryland. You know here's where it's making landfall. It was so powerful that it pretty much flooded almost all of Ocean City, Maryland, and it created the Ocean City Inlet, uh, which, uh, which, funny enough, they were excited about after the fact because they've been asking for uh, the, the Army Corps of Engineers to build it for about 10 years. And then they were like, thank you, Hurricane, for building us this, uh, for building our, our finally getting the job done with the inlet. So the inlet wouldn't have been in there if it weren't for the 33 Hurricane. So uh, that gives you an idea. And there was even storm surge uh, impacts going up the Delaware Bay as well. That's how big of a storm this was. Uh, again, Cat 1 at landfall, but it, you know, don't let that deceive you. And I think, you know, there's a long history of these type of tropical storms, Cat 1s, causing very big problems in, our, in the, the mid-Atlantic. But much like the Brownsville Hurricane, you know, we really haven't had the exact same type of storm since then. We've had Isabel, which went, you know, which is a, I can show you the track in a little bit, a little bit, but it's a little different. We have a Connie in 1955. We had Floyd in 1999, similar-ish, but not really like this, not this exact angle, exact location. And this is our nightmare scenario. Um, so here in region three, this is this is one of our chief scenarios for our emergency planning purposes. Um, and we talk about, you know, maybe some people don't realize it when we're looking at our scenarios, but we're talking about 1933 almost every day. Uh, because this is how how big of a uh, how how horrendous of a scenario it is, and it was just it was a quote unquote just a cat one when it hit. Imagine if it was a cat three, 
you know, imagine if it was as powerful as Barry's hurricane coming down, the, you know, coming up the bay, would it be even worse? Yeah, no, that that's a good point. I mean, just tracking there to the west of the bay, like you said, with the circulation, that's a, a worst case scenario. It sounds like you're saying in the lower bay, these were this these were the saltwater floods of record, but in the upper bay, um, Isabel was worth. Is that right? Yeah, where where there were gauges for both storms. The other kicker is that you know there's only a, a couple of gauges in the bay that are still around at the same time. So uh, it's possible that there are other parts, the upper parts of the bay, that maybe the 33 hurricane beat out. But as as far as we know, where we have the consistency in gauges, upper bay belongs to Isabel. Lower bay predominantly belongs to to the 33 hurricane. However, I w- we're talking about one A one B. Like it was still very impactful in the upper bay. Uh, Isabel is just a little bit worse. What kind of impacts can we see in the upper bay, like in, you know, Baltimore Harbor, even, even Washington, DC, can we see surge go up the Potomac and impact parts of Metro DC? Yep. And we had surge go up the Potomac in DC from this storm. Absolutely. Uh, you can see pretty bad impacts. And as we know, the farther up, you know, the, the, the farther up in the backwaters you get, you know, sometimes the impacts could be even worse given that the, the surge is finding, uh, fewer and fewer areas that are covered with water to stay, you know, to keep within the, you know, the bounds of the waterway. And it's just going to get smaller and smaller as you get to the end. So yeah, up there in the upper bay can be particularly bad, you know, depending on the forcing. But the Chesapeake Bay, you know, if you talk to Jamie Rome, Cody Fritz, the folks over there in the storm surge unit, they don't like the Chesapeake Bay. It's a very strange animal as far as waterways go. It's very, it's highly complex. The hydrology is very weird. Uh, so it's, it's one of those things where you can, you can have those type of peculiarities. Yeah, no, uh, Mike, for sure, when you get to bays, it's complex. Sometimes they really can enhance the storm surge. But you mentioned that there were also some big impacts on the Delmarva Peninsula on the ocean side, places like Ocean City, Maryland, and uh, really Delaware, Maryland, and Virginia. Uh, haven't these places experienced like explosive population growth? Like what would, it, what would it look like if 1933 repeated today? How would the impacts be different than 90 years ago? Absolutely. And there's a lot, I mean, and it's not even just the Delmarva, it's also, again, Hampton Roads itself. Think of all the military bases down there that have created a, a very large metropolitan area. Um, and then, of course, the Delmarva Peninsula has has rapidly expanded. To give you an idea, uh, this is Ocean City, Maryland. This is the southern tip of it. Uh, this is, back in 1933, this is about what Ocean City looked like, it went about 15 blocks. Today, it is now up to about I think 165 blocks of just development, you know, block after block of hotels and houses or in restaurants, everything like that. And then if you count Fenwick Island, Delaware, it probably goes another 10 to 20. So you're look at how much we went from that to that. And we really, you know, we've had a couple of scares. We've had a couple impacts in Ocean City since mostly from, you know, parallel storms. Um, and, and also the 1962 Ash Wednesday uh, storm, which was a nor'easter's uh, probably worse than you know most of the hurricanes, um, but we really haven't had a test of that 33 track for you know uh, since you know in the last 90 years. So there's a lot of vulnerability here, a lot of vulnerability, a lot more people, uh, a lot of tourists, even more tourists than back then. If this is this is you know could be a, a very impactful hurricane uh, if that were happening today. Mike, let's talk about evacuation. So anytime we have a peninsula, it becomes a concern, right? Because you have maybe millions of people with fewer evacuation routes getting out of there. I mean, what would that look like if we had a, a big time hit come towards the Delmarva today and people needed to evacuate? Oh, uh, if we're, you know, and again, it depends on the, you know, the, the strength of the storm. It depends on, uh, you know, a lot of different factors, of course. But if we were looking at like, let's say a 
you know, we, we could be dealing with uh, clearance times in the, you know, uh, sometimes a two-day range. Our hiring clearance times for this type of scenario could get us into that three, maybe even crazy four-day range, depending on, you know, depending on how many people exactly are going to heed to the order. Um, but, you know, getting off the peninsula is not particularly easy. Uh, all evacuation traffic would go north. Um, so they're either probably either going to go up to northern Delaware, maybe into Pennsylvania, or they're going to try to get over the Chesapeake Bay Bridge, the Route 50 Bay Bridge. And that's going to be um, that that's a big choke point for us. Uh, something we we're going to, you know, they have an evac. They always joke. They have an evacuation every weekend during the summer, um, you know, with the traffic. And then down here, uh, we're not going to let people go up the peninsula. We're going to try to you know tell people, you know, go this way down here. There's uh, a lot of people who live down there permanently year round and the transportation network is hasn't necessarily caught up with the amount of people you know it's not very conducive for very large-scale evacuations down there so it will be a challenge um it will be and also just the, the 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 fact that we haven't had this type of storm happen um down there there is some you know we do we are concerned about some complacency uh and and so on and so forth so you know that's going to be the help of the the media folks like you're that you all obviously the weather service like barry really helping us, you know, trying to get the word out and, and getting people to take this seriously if you ever do face something like 33 again. Yeah, I mean, we're, we're hoping it won't happen, but it sounds like you're doing everything you can to get out ahead of it, understand what the impacts could be and, and how to get people prepared. Uh, Mike, I wanted to mention too, you know, when people hear about the 33 hurricane, they're often focused on the flood impacts, the wind impacts, but a lot of people don't know a, a piece of meteorological history that has to do with uh, kind of the hurricane hunters and flying into hurricanes. Could you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, and actually, let me um, let me pull up a slide here real quick because there's a very fascinating story um, uh, about a very special connection uh, with the hurricane uh, with the hurricane hunter. So first and foremost, the, this one gentleman flew uh, was flying a mail carrier plane, um, and he landed at I believe the Hoover Airport, which no longer exists, but it's right next to Potomac River, and he just kind of stops, does what he needs to do, and he gets right back in the air, and this is the middle of the hurricane, and he goes south. And then he, we, they lose radio contact contact with them. And then when he gets down to North Carolina, he reports back like, "I think I just went through the center of this thing," um, and 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 everything seems to check out. Um, and that person, now the hurricane uh, nerds, uh, which probably makes up a big part of your audience, might recognize that name, J.B. Duckworth. J.B. Duckworth is now there is some controversy about whether he is actually the first quote unquote hurricane hunter. The, as the first person to intentionally go into a hurricane in 1943, there's a lot of, there's a great article uh, written by um, David Reed uh, that I highly recommend everybody that goes through the whole who actually did the first one. But at the end of the bit, the, the, the twist of the story is at the end of the day, J.B. Duckworth might have been the first person to unintentionally intercept a hurricane. So the same guy who may have been the, the first hurricane hunter officially might have been the first accidental hurricane hunter at the same time from the 33 hurricane. And then there doesn't seem to be much of a debate over whether the 33 story is true or not, or, or, or his place in the history. So that is, um, I think a really cool aspect of, of, uh, of this story with the 33 hurricane that in, in the, in the, uh, in the lore of hurricanes in American history. Yeah, that's fascinating. I mean, we know that uh, Duckworth flew into the surprise hurricane in 1943 over Galveston Bay. I didn't previously know that he uh, he unintentionally flew into the the 33. Perhaps really interesting history that you're bringing there. Well, hey y'all, we have a few minutes left in the broadcast. I wanted to open it up, Tim. I don't know if you have any other questions or anything came online, or if Barry have questions for Mike, or or Mike has any questions for Barry. 
Let me jump in. We've got a couple of questions from the audience, one for each of you. So for Mike first, um, the question is just how big was that storm when it was out in the Atlantic and how big was it when it when it reached the coast in terms of physical size? So it's, you know, back then it's hard to get a great idea about, exact, you know, pre-satellite era. Um, but what was very clear, again, it was it was creating the Ocean City Inlet uh, uh, far, far, far to the north of the uh you know far to the north of the uh of the where the center of it struck um and let me share this again yeah so you have this being the inlet being uh you have the inlet being created up here and then you also are seeing some coastal surge going up the bay so you look if you think about that had to be a very large storm which would be you know as we know as the hurricanes as hurricanes tend to get farther north you know latitude wise you know, they tend to, uh, you know, speed up and, uh, you know, kind of let themselves go a little bit size-wise. And that's, you know, pretty it's pretty typical for these type of, of events. So it wouldn't surprise me. There is even, there's even uh, reports of impacts up in Atlantic City, uh, Cape May. So you're talking about a very, what was likely a very, very large storm. Interesting. That was a good question. Thanks, Casper. And, and Barry, a question for you. Um, this comes from Casper as well. We're talking about tornadoes and storms. He wants to know uh, how much of a threat does South Texas get from tornadoes during hurricanes? And of course, Beulah was a good example of that. Yeah, thanks, Casper. So it will depend on the track of the storm uh, for us to get tornado impacts. And it's interesting, if you look at the landfalls of memory or of note for the Rio Grande Valley, um, going back to 1933, the direct strikes of 33, Hurricane Beulah, um, Hurricane Dolly, and Hurricane Hannah uh, pretty much kept tornadoes largely away. There's been a few, but for Beulah, for example, the northeastern quadrant, the classic northeastern quadrant of the storm was from the middle Texas coast, <clears throat> Corpus Christi area, up towards Austin, San Antonio, and Houston, Galveston, where at the time uh, there were anywhere between 115 and 146, I believe, depending on which record you're looking at, tornadoes. And it was the record until Hurricane Ivan came by uh, the Southeast US in 2004. So <clears throat> tornadoes can happen here though. If we have a landfalling event such as Alex in 2010, <clears throat> which made landfall about, <clears throat> about 90 miles south of the Rio Grande, uh, we did have a number of spin-ups that were detected by radar, and there was one that we were able to survey. It wasn't EF0, but uh, they can happen here. So we can be in that quadrant. But if it's a direct hit, we found that from Beulah to Dolly to Hannah to 1933, we don't have much record of tornadoes. And if there were embedded tornadic circulations, they'd be really hard to pick out amidst the 100 to 125 plus mile per hour winds that were experienced um, during the heaviest of the rainfall. Great question. Thanks, Barry. Good answer. We're, we're running out of time. We need to get over to Brian McNulty coming up in a second. Um, let me, let's just see last thoughts before we before we wrap this up. Mike, um, you know, 90 years ago, and here we are today, uh, hoping we don't see this again, right? Uh, absolutely. This is, again, we think about 1933 every single day whether the folks here notice it, know it or not, but this is our main, this is our main nightmare scenario. So, um, and again, we even plan for what if it's a little stronger coming in. Uh, so that's something that we're looking at every single day. We definitely hope never happens again. Thank you, Mike. Appreciate that. Barry, same thing here, I suppose. Yeah. So 33 for us would be, um, I don't say a nightmare scenario, but certainly a, a destructive scenario that would be concerning. 
But there's a silver lining. It's that it was a Cabo Verde event that had a major status all the way through much of its life, which would give plenty of people notice to evacuate uh, in time. And with Hurricane Allen, which was our really storm of all fears back in 1980, a, a large number of people did evacuate inland, and that may have well saved some lives, even though Allen did weaken. So I think the people here would bond together to move out for a storm like that. What concerns me is more like a, a Harvey scenario, where you literally have a degenerated wave that is uh, in the southwestern Gulf, and it rapidly spins up and could make a landfall as a Category 4 on our coastline versus Rockport. And it's not that far away in terms of the beeline you can make. And if there's only 24 to 48 hours to make an evacuation decision going inland, you know, up to 50, 60 miles, well, that could be a real troublesome situation given our clearance times and the lack of concern that soon out. So uh, my nightmare is more like a Harvey scenario displaced farther west uh, versus a 1933 or even a Beulah scenario where we have some time. Great insight, guys. Appreciate that, Mike and Barry, so much. Hal, your final thoughts on this before we take a break and move over to the next conversation? You know, it's just interesting to look back in history and say, what if that repeated today? Because you get to places like, I mean, South Texas comes to mind especially. Uh, how many people have said, say, I've lived here my whole life and there's been nothing happened? You know, they, they maybe moved there in 1982 or something. So um, it, it's a concern as well in the Chesapeake to Tepom- Tepom- Potomac area as well. Uh, we know there's been a huge amount of population growth in both of these regions. And if it repeated today, a lot of people may be seeing conditions they've never seen before or never even imagined. Great stuff. Thanks, guys. We appreciate the great conversation. We appreciate you taking time to be with us this morning for NTWC Live. Barry, Mike, great job. Thank you so much. Thanks, guys. Thank you. Well, thank our sponsors who are part of this program day in and day out, USAA, South Padre Island Convention and Visitors Bureau, the Weather Company, and Weather Boy. They are part of the folks, they are the folks who make this program a possibility. Okay, time for a GeoTrek podcast update. Hal, take it away. Hey, everybody. Yeah, so with GeoTrek, we're traveling the world, uh, coming up with these stories not really shared on the mainstream media. We're all about understanding the the processes that uh, that create extreme weather and natural disasters, as well as the uh, the impacts and how we can mitigate those impacts as well over time. Well, I'm sharing my screen here, and I have some exciting news to share with you coming out of the GeoTrek project. This is pretty interesting with our partnership with something called Flood Information Systems. So with FIS or Flood Information Systems, systems, we're really building the first data-driven flood risk analysis along the Atlantic and the Gulf Coast. This is in partnership with our project called the USurge project, which is the first storm surge database for the U.S. That gives us a good idea of what's happened as far as flood history for locations and, and what the data-driven 100-year flood is or 50-year flood is. But we're also interested to build out the building inventory. Where are buildings and what is their building elevation? These are pictures from a project we did in Biloxi, Mississippi. You can see when you get along the coast, you'll get some buildings elevated quite high, their neighbors might not be elevated at all. So what we've done is we've gone out to the communities, we use elevation certificates, GPS equipment, and we also do street level imagery analysis. And we do this to create a comprehensive building elevation maps for communities. This is again from Biloxi. These are building elevations for about 1500 buildings in Biloxi, Mississippi. The darker the color, the lower the building elevation. Um, and, and we can actually take historic storms like Hurricane Katrina and put those on the building elevation. And we see 99% of the buildings in this area of Biloxi took on flood water in Katrina 
And look at this, 14% of them had more than 12 feet of water inside the building. So uh, we can actually forecast um, and, and document what's happening at the building level for these communities. This also for Biloxi here, this shows you um, the comparison of the elevation of buildings compared to FEMA's base flood elevation. So orange and red, you're either outside of the 100-year the flood zone, or if, if you're, um, I'm sorry, orange and yellow, if you're in yellow there, you're in the 100-year flood zone, but you're elevated higher than the base flood elevation. But about 73% of those buildings are in the 100-year flood zone, and they're elevated lower than the, the required building code today. So another way to look at that, if you put a 16 or 17 foot flood into Biloxi, every building shaded in blue there would take on flood water. So we can actually predict how much water is going to be in, in at, at the building to building level, at uh, really block level or also in specific buildings. Well, the reason I bring this up, we're really pushing forward now to rapidly develop these data. We're building this out now for Galveston, Texas, uh, where I live right here. We're hiring a team of data analysts, most of which are um, university students, either undergrads or grads. I'm going to unshare my screen here um, just for... Uh, we're, we're building out these data rapidly. We're in the process of hiring 20 to 25 data analysts, mostly undergrad and graduate students. This is part-time remote work up to 10 hours a week. Basically, you're looking at street-level imagery. You're anal analyzing that, and that goes into our community maps. The vision with this, we can take coastal communities and really predict at the building level how many buildings will be flooded from a hurricane or a tropical storm. We're still in the process of hiring college students for this. We have a lot of students from Texas A&M and Florida State as well. If you know of an under grad or grad student that could use some part-time work and is uh, in meteorology, climatology, uh, urban and regional planning, disaster management, geography, any of these fields, uh, have them reach out to me. Um, you, you can just uh, do a Google for Hurricane Hal or Hal Needham and uh, just shoot me a message and we'd love to talk to them and hopefully bring them on our team. We're trying to rapidly build these out and to do that, we're hiring uh, college students to do the, uh, the data analysis and be part of our team. It's a great resume builder and it's gonna help save lives and reduce losses moving forward. That's in partnership with GeoTrack and our partner company, uh, Flood Information Systems. So just a quick update there. We like to uh, bring to uh, to you news like this that's applicable, and that could help uh, the students get some part-time work, some good job experience, and help save lives in the process. Tim, back to you. Thanks, Al. Always interesting, the GeoTrek uh, happenings. Uh, a lot of great stuff going on there, so we appreciate that update. Okay, we're going to move along now. Good first half of the program. Now we're ready to talk more about what's going on in the Atlantic today, what's going on in the Atlantic Basin uh, today. It's, it's it's unusual, let's just say that. Uh, Brian McNulty is our guest, so let's go back to Hal. And Hal, why don't you do the introduction and get this conversation started? Yeah, for sure. We have a very special guest who's always extremely knowledgeable about uh, sea surface temperatures and what's going on out there in the Atlantic. Brian McNulty is a senior research associate at University of Miami's Rosenstiel School of Marine, Atmospheric, and Earth Science. He spent 10 years at Colorado State University conducting research on a variety of topics, specializing in tropical cyclones. He's a tropical weather expert for the Washington Post Capital Weather Gang blog. Brian, thank you so much for taking time to come on NTWC Live. My pleasure. I always appreciate the the uh, chance to speak with with you guys. Brian, uh, you're kind of one of my go-to guys for like what's going on with uh, sea surface temperatures, and and it sounds like a lot of really interesting things have been going on very unusually in the Atlantic Basin. It has been very unusual, um, and uh, you know we we kind of use the phrase or the the word unprecedented now and then but this <laughs> these last few months warrant the use of that word um 
looking across the the North Atlantic as a whole, it's been record-breakingly warm since mid-March, and it's it keeps breaking records by more and more. So it's it's not it, it's so far beyond just record-breaking now. Um, it's it's into that realm of scratching our heads of what's actually going on here. Brian, what's the spatial pattern of this? I mean, is this focused more on the tropical Atlantic or is this more like a basin-wide thing? It's really across all of the North Atlantic right now. Um, in the deep tropics, uh, that, that water's running, uh, you know, about two degrees C above average. So th 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 three, three to four degrees Fahrenheit above average, which is a pretty big deal. Um, it, the part up near the, the UK, so up in the, the, the northeast part of the Atlantic, they're calming back down to near normal, but they had their, uh, you know, the, the, the whole uh, part of the, the ocean surrounding the UK was super hot um, about, what was that, three or four weeks ago. Um, now the hot spot of the Atlantic is near Greenland, New Newfoundland, Nova Scotia, that whole area is running extremely warm for this time of year. Brian, when people hear about two degrees Celsius warmer than normal in the tropical Atlantic, that might not sound like a lot. Could you kind of walk us through what does that mean for potential hurricane development? Yeah, it it is one of those numbers that's a it's a little hard to to put to, to wrap your mind around if you're if you're not used to looking at these things. That's actually a huge number. Um, hurricanes are really in tune with the with the, the ocean's um, heat content and sea surface temperature um, because it's really the thing that, that controls a hurricane is how warm is the ocean surface and then how cold is its outflow at the you know way, way up top and that outflow way up top that actually doesn't change by much in the deep tropics that's pretty much a constant um, so really the thing that changes that affects a hurricane is how warm it, it has to work with at, at the ocean. Um, and so you change that by one degree C or even two, you know, you're, you're going from, let's say, 26 degrees Celsius to 28 or 28 to 30. Those are gigantic changes for a hurricane that not only can influence if something can form, you know, that, that might be enough to be a, a nudge to push something that maybe was iffy before to saying, yep, go, you're, you're all good. Um, or if you already have a hurricane, it can become more intense. Um, if you already have a hurricane, it's more likely to uh, ra ra rapidly intensify. So you've got all, all those things can, can happen just with these one to two degree C anomalies. Yeah, and Brian, I've noticed spatially, it's really covering a large amount of area. So it's not like just one point in time, the hurricane can intensify more, right? It it intensifies more today and then tomorrow it builds on that, right? <laughs> so it's, I'd imagine there's really a cumulative effect of, of the impact of this. Yeah, I think that's 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 a good way to look at it, is it's, it's not really localized. Maybe the only place right now that's not super anomalously warm is in the, uh, the Western Caribbean, the Central Caribbean. And actually that area this time of year is hostile to hurricanes anyway because of uh, wind shear. So that area is kind of off, off limits anyway. <laughs> um, so yeah, I, I think that's a, 
that's a that's a good point is no no matter where a hurricane finds itself it's going to find an anomalously warm ocean water right now Sure. Brian, I wanted to ask you about the AMO, the Atlantic Multidecadal Oscillation. So that's really a multidecadal signal where we've seen warmer than normal ocean temperatures in the Atlantic. When we talk about, say, two degrees above normal, is that above the long-term average? Or like, does that take into account what the AMO has done? Or is that just on top of the AMO? Uh, a lot of the, when we're looking at an average, most of them use uh, the most recent 30-year climate normal. Um, and that's that's done just because the climate does change. Um, so you know we're not generally for for, for most of the, the things that we can com compute an anomaly for, you need to have um, you know a fixed baseline to calculate it from. And typically now that's the 1991 to 2020 um, climate normal. And so that's typically what's what's used. So it's not, specifically using some phase uh, of the a AMO. You know, what's really interesting, it seems like the AMO shifted into a warm or positive phase around 95. So from what you're saying, most of the baseline climatology is already in the AMO time period. And now we're, it sounds like we're a few degrees anomalously warmer than that, right? Right. That's, that's an excellent point. Um, so with that 1991 to 2020 timeframe being used for the climatology, that's exactly right. We're already including the, the warm phase and we're anomalously warm compared to that. Yeah, no, that's fascinating. And, you know, just something to keep an eye on. It sounds like if all the conditions align, if we get a moist atmosphere, if we lose the wind shear and and have a big enough uh, cluster of thunderstorms or a disturbance, it sounds like there could really be some rapid intensification and things really ramping up this year. Yeah, yeah, I think that's right. And of course, everyone's kind of paying attention to, to El, El Nino and, and its effect on increasing wind shear across the tropical Atlantic. So you're going to have that working against it. But I think the sea surface temperatures being as warm as they are um, might offer the, the hurricanes a little bit of a, of a nudge up. Well, let's talk about this. There's kind of a tug of war out there, right? We know a warm yeah. Atlantic leads to more hurricanes in the basin, but a warm Pacific, El Nino, typically we get more wind shear in the Atlantic. How, how do you see that possibly playing out with those competing forces? Yeah, that's that's the great unknown in this because I, I don't know that there's any historical um, year to, to look at that's like this, where the, the Atlantic is this warm and there's an El Nino. <laughs> um, so it really is one of those times when for the you know the, the places that make these long-term outlooks for the season, like CSU and Phil Klotzbach, who you guys speak with qu quite often too, um, it's an opportunity to have a big bust um, because you you have a strong positive and a strong negative. If you want to reduce your risk, you pick somewhere down the middle. But if you pick a side, you have the chance to either look really good or really bad. <laughs> um, yeah, like you said, I, it's a bit of an unknown, right? It is. This is a very challenging year, I think, um, because no one has a crystal ball that good to, uh, to, to know what's going to happen in August and September, October. Um, I mean, if I had to put money on it, I would probably go on the above average side because the sea surface temperatures are just that warm. And El Nino is really not that strong yet. It's we're just clicking into it. So it's not like a raging El Nino with super strong wind shear. It's just coming into life. Um, so, you know, I, I think with, with that weighing against the very warm ocean temperatures that are already there, like that's, that's a for sure thing. 
uh, I think that's why I would put my money on, on the sea surface temperatures playing a bigger role. Brian, we've talked about how much warmer the water is in the tropical Atlantic than normal. Right now it's late July. I mean, are the water temperatures already where they would be, uh, say, in late August or September? I mean, when does the season usually peak as far as the water temperatures in the tropical Atlantic? And are we already at the, the what normally is the peak or not quite there yet? Yeah, we're not quite at the peak. I, um, from what I, I remember, I'm not looking at, at this right now, but, I, you know, the the tropical Atlantic, I believe, peaks in late August or so, um, somewhere in that time frame. So, yeah, we haven't reached the peak yet. But, um, again, from what I looked at, we're already warmer than what it would be at the peak. So okay. e- even if, if it if the anomaly is completely switched off right now and it just stayed where it was at, it's already warmer than where it would normally be at by the peak. So the physics of this, these hurricanes, they don't know, they don't have a calendar, right? As far as they're concerned, (laughs) it's almost like it's late August or early September out there, even though it's still July. Yeah. Yeah. So that, that brings up two, two good points. Um, First is this time of year, we don't have a lot of easterly waves coming off of Africa yet. Um, There, that season is, ramping up soon in a couple of weeks. Um, but so far they're usually limited this time of year by, uh, some accompanying dry air also coming from Africa. So when they come off, they tend to wrap that into themselves and not so good for, for a hurricane. Um, so, you know, they're, they're still working with that. Um, the other part of this is when you do have these maybe pre easterly wave season things happen. Like I said, we're not really into the heart of that part of the season yet. Um, but having these super warm waters in the eastern tropical Atlantic, uh, I would say almost certainly will extend that season because you're taking parts of the ocean that maybe might have been a little too cool or just just on that on that line and making them warm, like quite warm. So it you you can you can kind of extend the season that way because you're you're sure. you're basically putting uh, the fast for, for, forward button on on the ocean. Well, and we've seen this already in the NHC of Tropical Weather Outlook. Some of these areas of possible development already showing up, coming out of the Cape Verde and and farther east in the MDR than we normally would see uh, for July, right? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. We're seeing that light up, and of course, you know, go back. Boy, it's been a little over a month now, five weeks. We saw Brett and Cindy, both Brett and Cindy were active tropical storms in the MDR in mid-June, which was the first time that's ever happened. So I think that's also a sign that something is, is askew out there. That's good evidence of the season really extending, right? So this not only has a change over space, but a change over time as well. Yeah. Brian, uh, could you walk us through a little bit of this climatology with dust? It sounds like more of these dust outbreaks happen maybe earlier in the summer. Uh, does the atmosphere in the MDR kind of moisten up when we get into August and September? And and do we generally see less of those dust outbreaks coming from Africa? Yeah, you, you got it spot on. Um, usually like May, June, J- July, um, you definitely see a lot of Saharan dust outbreaks. That's totally normal. Um, this year, we've actually seen relatively few. And so I think that's part of why we're seeing such a warm tropical ocean. It's it's in turn related to a much weaker than normal subtropical high. So all these things are kind of linked. Um, and 
you know, we're the last few weeks or so, two or three weeks, we, we have seen uh, some more outbreaks of this uh, dry Saharan air streaming across the Atlantic. Um, but prior to that, it actually was pretty sparse, which is not normal. Yeah, no, so, that's, yeah, fascinating. So it sounds like uh, we've seen a few of these, but it sounds like the beginning of the season, we did not see a whole lot of dry air outbreaks over the basin. Right, right. And I think that's, you know, that could certainly have been an ingredient of why Brett and Cindy were able to become tropical storms in the MDR in mid-June. Um, but uh, to, to get to get back to your first question, yes, by mid-August-ish, we generally tend to see that start to quiet down. You don't see the, the um, dry Saharan air plumes come off uh, with the same frequency or intensity that they were. But you start seeing those waves coming off of, of, of the continent of Africa, and those are what become hurricanes. Um, and so when they come off of Africa and don't have that dry air right next to them, that's what kind of starts that part of the season. Sure, they're just really primed for development. I guess that's why we see so many of these tropical waves that can form when we get a later in the summer, right? Yep, yep. It's it's just all, it's a very normal thing. Um, it's just this year we have not had the amount of Saharan uh, air layer outbreaks that we normally have. Brian, I wanted to bring the conversation back closer to you. I know you're you're a few steps from one of the most amazing, beautiful scenes I've ever seen. You're right there in Virginia <laughs> Key at the University of Miami, a beautiful setting. But you also have a tide gauge there. I know we've we've heard all over the media the record warm water temperatures uh, along the coast of Florida. What are you seeing where you're located, and how could that possibly impact hurricane development closer to South Florida? Well, uh, so here on Virginia Key, it's been occasionally record-breaking uh, at least you know to to compare it against itself uh, the, the records go back to 1994 at this location so not super long but um, we have had a few days here and there that are record-breaking uh, the temperatures lately have been close to record-breaking uh, certainly well above the average as we mentioned a few minutes ago you know we're up at 91 92 instead of 88 89 so uh, that's that's a that's a large anomaly um, and then, yeah, of course, the uh, attention-grabbing, uh, the the water temperatures in the Florida Bay have just been outlandish, you know, 96, 97, 98. And, of course, recently of, of great fame is the 101 measurement, which apparently the instrument is working. That's been looked at, and it, I mean, so... It does look like it actually measured 101 degree Fahrenheit uh, ocean temperature there, um, which if if that's if that's the case, that is a new world record. If it qualifies, uh, and actually the the afternoon before that it was at 100, so <laughs> which also would have been the world record. So if if this location qualifies as you know a location that could be a world record type uh, location then it broke the world record one day and then broke its own record the next day. Um, now, the, the reason I say if is kind of two things. One, there's really no worldwide standard of what a record ocean temperature is, like how deep should it be measured? What's the environment like? Eh, it's a gray zone. <laughs> and so there, you know, there's no international standard, I guess is one thing. And two, this location is... Um, it's it's in a mangrovey, very um, still 
part of the, the uh, Florida Bay. It's not very deep. Uh, this water temperature is measured five feet below uh, mean low tide, which, you know, so it's not right at the skin, that's for sure. But still, it's, it's, it's not very deep there. It sounds like it's a bit stagnant, maybe not a lot of mixing. Um, yeah. so although maybe it is a quote unquote world record, it, it sounds like it's uh, maybe different than a tide gauge out in a place that's more mixed or something like that. Yeah, absolutely. I, I would, again, so if we're, if we're going to take the, the 101 degree measurement as, as true and that it actually did measure 101 degree water, I would still put an asterisk next to calling it a world record. At this point, sure. that, that has not been confirmed or allowed into the records. <laughs> Nonetheless, the water temps in South Florida in the near shore environment have been incredibly warm. I mean, could yeah. that possibly have an impact if there was a tropical system moving towards the coast there? Um, it could. It's um, let me I'm going to look at a at the, the most recent map right now. Um, so the, the water temperatures again, we're not really looking at the Florida Bay scale. A, a hurricane won't care about something that localized. It's kind of looking at, you know, something 100, 100, 200 miles type features is what a hurricane starts to have an interest in. <laughs> um, and the water around Florida, both off the West Coast and off the East Coast, and that's, you know, in the two to occasionally even three degrees C above the average, That that's a big deal. Sure, um, sure. A, a, a hurricane would definitely sense that as it approaches the coast. Um, so... That's a concern, you know, if, if we do have a hurricane out there approaching Florida, these super warm waters that do extend one or 200 miles off the coast, uh, that's enough to give it a nudge. Something zooming sure. into just the Florida Bay, not really quite so large enough. It sounds like even though media are maybe focused on that that record-breaking 101 temperature, you're saying what's more important are the, the broader temperatures that are two or three Celsius above normal. Yeah, yeah. It's just giving more space and time for the hurricane. Uh, Brian, as we wrap up here, any last uh, thoughts you'd want to share with our audience as we move into this really the heart of hurricane season? Anything that people should really be thinking about this year? No, I think, you know, as always, it's not so much what the, the season as a whole has in store for us. It's just you have to always be paying attention to what's out there um, with ocean temperatures much warmer than normal for this time of year. I think we will be more prone to see uh, storms get more intense than they than they might have so um i you know we just have to be paying paying attention as as, as we always do <laughs> Yeah, for sure. And, you know, I've heard people say about in, in recent years, we've had a lot of storms rapidly intensify before landfall that yeah. can take your cat one and turn it into a cat four or a tropical storm and turn it into a cat two or three in, in short time. Right. Right. Yeah. I think that that's the huge concern. And just real, real quick, I think one of the, the great stats of U.S. landfalling hurricanes um, of all four hurricanes that made landfall at category five intensity, they were all just tropical storms three days before they hit the coast. Wait, so all four landfalling Cat 5s were tropical storms three days before landfall? That's right. Wow, I did not know that, Stack. You're a, Stack, you're a walking encyclopedia for hurricane <laughs> stuff, man. Every, every time we uh, have a conversation, I learn something new from you. But that is a good reminder that you can, how quickly these things can ramp up, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, 
Thanks for that, Brian. Um, that's a, I think that's a very useful, applicable stat that our our uh, viewers will um, take take in take to heart as they prepare for hurricanes this year. Brian, thank you so much for taking time to come on NTWC. I'm hoping uh, for a light year down there in Miami, but if it <laughs> if it does ramp up, I know you, you're doing a lot of stuff to help people be prepared. I know you have your radar loops online and all kinds of projects you've done through the years. So um, I know a lot of people in the community are very thankful for the research you've done and the great communication you do through the Washington Post and and other means as well. Oh, I, I appreciate that, Hal. Thank you. Thanks, Brian. Guys, thank you. What a terrific conversation. I could listen to this for another two hours, but we don't have much time. <laughs> so good stuff, guys. Thank you, Brian. Thank you. And how great questions. Very insightful. We appreciate that. We want to thank our sponsors for being part of the program today, USAA, South Padre Island Convention and Visitors Bureau, the Weather Company, and Weather Boy, all part of the National Tropical Weather Conference. Our next conference is in April of 2024, back on South Padre Island. We hope to see you all there. You never know what might happen. A pub crawl might break out. You never know. But uh, good times will be had by all, we promise that next week on the program barry goldsmith is back once again and leslie chapman henderson will be with us next week we're going to talk about uh, collaborative efforts to build resilient communities we've seen issues where resilience is weak and we're going to try to talk about that a little bit so that's next week so also thanks to barry goldsmith and mike builder for being part of the program today that wraps it up for today we'll see you next week for another episode of ntwc live take care We hope you enjoyed this episode of NTWC Live Hurricane Center Podcast. If you did, head over to Apple Podcasts and leave us a five-star review. And join us next week. This is NTWC Live.